This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Ian Leslie and welcome to the first Election Time Deep Dive I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election. Theresa May is going up and down the country, stirring up apathy. When people come to vote, they will have a choice. Jeremy Corbyn is gazing wistfully at a jar of jam while his mind has tried to talk him out of that holiday he's been looking forward to so much. Much of the media and the establishment are saying this election is a foregone conclusion. And Tim Farron is preparing for media interviews by close reading Leviticus. I'm not in a position to go making theological pronouncement. The New Statesman office is electrified with excitement at the prospect of hearing the same stump speeches repeated ten times a day forever into eternity. Here at the Deep Dive, of course, we float serenely above the daily hubbub, observing the news with Olympian detachment. But even we come down from the mountain now and again, and in this show we'll be talking about elections, more specifically elections and promises. What is a mandate? It is said that the Prime Minister is seeking a mandate for Brexit, or soft Brexit, or hard Brexit, or for crushing all opposition like ants beneath her boots. But what exactly does a mandate mean? A related question, what are manifestos for? Are they like contracts? And if so, why can't we sue the government when it fails to come through on that promise to spend more on my local hospital or cut my marginal tax rate? I'm here, as usual, with Stuart Wood. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. How is this time for you? It must be very exciting for you because you don't have to face the electorate. It's very exciting and very restful, which (laughs) is good compared to the last two, in many ways. And uh, you have had experience, of course, uh, of first-hand experience of of fighting elections at close quarters. What's been your impression of this? Well, I mean, the, the origin of this one obviously is different, a surprise election, although I have to put a plug in for my own predictive powers because I've been saying for six months it would happen. True. Uh, bookings welcome. Um, but um, I think the thing that when you're involved in an election that, that strikes me is how much elections are based on a series of fictions. Um, you mentioned the idea of a mandate. The idea that when a government emerges at the end of an election, it somehow represents a mandate 
it's surely a load of nonsense because people vote for a multitude of reasons. The electoral system shapes the way in which people's preferences map out in terms of seats, in terms of parties, and then in terms of governments. Um, so the idea that you can say that expresses a particular view about a particular set of issues or even one issue, it seems to me a total political nonsense. Maybe we, we rely on it in order to work as a country politically, but it doesn't make any sense, it seems to me. Similarly, on a manifesto, you mentioned the idea of manifesto as a contract. I mean, having been involved in writing manifestos, when you write a manifesto, you deal in generalities. And when you govern, if you get to the point of governing, you deal in specificity and you deal in exceptions to generalities. And manifestos, it seems to me, are a pretty poor guide to, uh, to what governments uh, go on to do. And when they are broken, as Theresa May has broken the 2015 manifesto, even in her short time as prime minister, nothing seems to happen other than a few headlines. So what exactly the purpose of a manifesto is, I think, is something that's worth thinking about. But then there's a series of things about elections themselves, in particular the rules about how elections are run, which strike me as incredibly out of date. This distinction between national and local spending, which is very much in the news at the moment with possible court cases. Um, the, the idea that regulated spending during the campaign is very strict, but it doesn't cover all sorts of things like online spending by third parties. I mean, these rules don't really capture how modern campaigns work. And so it seems to me that magical as electoral campaigns are in a democracy, and they are special, the, the kind of concepts and rules that, that they run by, I think, need a bit of refreshing and a bit of thought. So hopefully we can do a bit of that today. Yeah. And also, you know, just the, the closer you look at an election like you're suggesting, actually, the sort of weirder it gets. Mm. Um, they seem to be about one thing, but actually they're about something else. And we'll, we'll be getting into these issues in a bit more detail with our special guest, Catherine Haddon. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Welcome. Um, Catherine is resident historian at the Institute of Government. She's an expert on the British Constitution, such as, as it is, on elections and, um, uh, and the machinery of, of British government. So she is the perfect person to help us navigate these waters. Um, Catherine, before we get into this question of mandates and manifestos, perhaps you can just clear something up for me. Um, I've read a lot of grave uh, think pieces over, over the last few years about the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and how... Uh, incredibly difficult it may made it for uh, and a prime minister to call an election how that had fundamentally changed yeah. the nature of british politics so, and then theresa may just walked out in front of downing street and called an election so <laughs> what's going on there yeah well I, it's it's quite surprising i mean it's a strong tradition in british politics that you can call a snap election obviously 2007 was our last example where um many talked about would gordon brown go for this autumn 2007 election um, get him his own personal mandate. We'll be talking further about mandates in a minute. Um, the Fixed End Parliaments Act, you have to think about its origins. And it was largely the Liberal Democrats wanting to make sure that under the coalition, the Conservatives couldn't pull the rug from underneath them. They couldn't, without Liberal Democrat support, or indeed support of other parties, call a sudden election uh, and then try and get the majority, sort of David Cameron, two years into the coalition. Um, Obviously, they're going on the experience they had of the late 1970s, where they had a pact with Labour to keep James Callaghan in, into power. So this was a sort of crucial way for them making sure that it was it was basically taken out of the hands of the prime minister. What it also did, though, is took it out of the hands of the uh, palace. 
uh, because historically it was the monarch who actually dissolved parliaments. Um, she still technically plays a role in as much as um, Theresa May would have had to go and inform her that uh, this was happening and setting the date for the election. Um, but we have, way back when, we have had examples where uh, Buckingham Palace um, has actually turned down the opportunity for an election because they thought it was too rushed, too sudden. Um, this Queen would never do such a thing. Monarchs have not been involved in British politics in that way. So it was a, it was a sort of... It was a prerogative power, but one that really stood with the Prime Minister. And Fixed Term Parliament Act was to take that prerogative power and put it into the hands of Parliament. So it was also about empowering Parliament. But it seems to have been quite easily circumvented. I mean... Yeah. So, so kind of what was the point of it, really? Well, you know, I if- mean, you can argue that it, it worked in these circumstances because the circumstances, you know meant that it was a good thing to do. It was really down to Jeremy Corbyn. I'm sure there were great discussions in the Labour Party, I'm sure Stuart would know, uh, as to whether or not they should support her. And it really came down to whether or not Labour would for her to get those votes. Um, So they could easily have refused to support her in the two-thirds majority and forced her government to either have a vote of confidence in themselves or for Labour to, to ask for a vote of confidence, which would have required Conservatives to vote against their own prime minister, effectively, in order to have this general election. So Labour did have that opportunity, but obviously she called their bluff. She called Jeremy Corbyn's bluff. Doesn't that, I mean, having been involved in that Labour discussion in Parliamentary Labour Party meeting on Monday, there was a healthy debate about whether to support or not. But, I mean, it's easy in hindsight to say this, but the idea that the opposition party would ever say no to bringing down a government is surely nonsense. So the Fixed Term Parliaments Act threshold was never going to be a real threshold, was it? This idea of two-thirds majority being a high threshold. When the opposition party has a go, has a chance to say, get lost to a government, they'd be mad to say anything other than get lost. True, but I think you have to see the specific circumstances this time round. You have obviously a Labour Party leader who needs to prove himself. Um, He's done it twice in, in elections within the party, but he hasn't yet faced the country. So that pressure was on him. You could have circumstances where you had a very different Labour Party, um, how its position was in the polls, um, that may have felt more empowered, and also a Prime Minister who was much more embattled. Um, and you could have had a different circumstances where we've had votes of confidence in the past in, in parties. Um, a vote of confidence was, was what eventually brought down James Callaghan. So that other mechanism could also have been used had the circumstances been different. I think the issue is whether or not you want to keep the two-thirds majority or whether or not you want to repeal or amend the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. It's difficult to see how it goes back to being a royal prerogative. So what other option do we have? Do we give that power back to the Prime Minister through a simple majority or do you keep this mechanism? It's, it's really a question of what else you could do. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I'm going to move on to, to this question of, of mandates and manifestos. Perhaps we could just start by just going back and and looking at when, when did parties start to put manifestos at, at elections? What's the sort of origin of, of the convention of, of a manifesto um, and how has it evolved over the years? Well, it's a long story. Let's start in 1834. Yes. So uh, you've got Robert Peel asked to um, asked to form an administration after the Duke of Wellington had turned down forming uh, an administration. Um, and 
for him, he put forward this manifesto called the Tamworth Manifesto. He, um, he wanted to portray how he differed from the old Tory traditions. This is supposedly the origins of modern conservatism. Um, so that was more about principles, really, although it did cover a number of key issues that were currently in the public domain. Um, since then, it's evolved in different ways. And you have also a really important development, which involves the House of Lords. And, and in this, when we talk about manifestos, the House of Lords is really a key player. Um, I'm glad to hear it. Yep. In the 1860s, <laughs> 70s, 1880s, uh, you have then uh, the Marquis of Salisbury, who is um, trying to develop this concept of what is a mandate? Um, when does the government have a mandate? And on what basis of their manifesto promises or what they've said about how they will act towards a particular um, policy? And how important is that? And does it mean that the Lords should play a role in either amending it or, or letting it through? And that continues up in, into the sort of period after the Second World War where you have a Labour Party come in, but a very conservative-dominated um, House of Lords. And then you have the development of the Salisbury Addison, the two key Lords um, that helped sort of negotiate this, this deal, which was that the House of Lords would not, would not do wrecking amendments, would not strike down or refuse to pass um, things that were in the Labour Party's manifesto. So the key policies, nationalisation, the welfare states, they, they promised not to do that. That didn't mean that they couldn't substantially alter and amend, that proper scrutiny wouldn't be there, but it did mean that ultimately they had to respect that the commons, which is this what happened throughout the 19th century, this idea that the commons, because you've got increasingly more representative elections, obviously women not really getting the full, fair vote until 1928, um, meant that the commons was the primary uh, chamber and therefore a party coming in with clear objectives, those objectives had to be respected. So the idea of the authority of the manifesto is actually historically a way of getting around the House of Lords or, or enabling, the, enabling the commons to be supreme over the House of Lords. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, you've also got to see alongside that the relationship between parties and voters and how manifestos have developed. I mean, yeah. 1900, I think that the, one of the manifestos was 800 words long and contained maybe four pledges, very vaguely worded. Um, so it's really a much more modern convention, this idea of much more specificity about money, particular money, you know, and particular outcomes from policies. But I, I completely agree with you, Stuart, that obviously all of these policies, once they hit, you know, the reality of government, the reality of spending, and also because circumstances change, means that governments once in power often have to change their policies, have to bring in new policies. And so it's, it's really a question of should we just take the things they try to get elected on as being the things that are important that that government should achieve. It's really interesting that manifestos have got longer and more detailed, um, kind of the less time people have to read them, for one thing, yeah. um, and, and the less relevant they are. I mean... Y Nobody cares what's in the manifesto in detail, unless they are made to care, unless somebody makes a big issue out mm. of it, as happened over, over national insurance and tax rises. I bet if you asked most voters, they you know, wouldn't have really noticed that there was a, you know, wouldn't re remember that there was that tax page in the last manifesto. Um, but obviously you give a hostage to fortune if you put that in a manifesto, because somebody can turn it into a big political issue. But how much voters read manifestos and get it's interesting it's sort of its origins as a almost a sort of internal uh, office management kind of issue between the the, the two houses it hasn't really translated into a popular kind of 
I think also my experience of manifestos is, is it's, a, it's a brokering device within the party. You're, yeah. you're trying to keep different constituencies right. in the party happy by saying, don't worry, on page 43, you got your little pledge, though, or you got your huge pledge. Um, so it's much more for a party audience than it is for a public audience. Yeah. As you say, apart from a one or two headline issues, in particular tax pledges, which I think acquire okay. a kind of iron, iron focus once, yes. they're in a, once they're in print. Yeah, and I think also you have to think about the different meanings of the term mandate. I mean, to re- the, over time there have been all sorts of different reasons why prime ministers have sought a so-called mandate. Sometimes it's been about passing a particularly contentious piece of legislation, such as in 1910 where you have obviously a budget coming through that was opposed by the Lords, leading to reform of the Lords. Or um, it's sometimes about actually increasing your majorities, getting a a stronger mandate in terms of stronger support, more numbers in the Commons, as we saw under Harold Wilson when he did two uh, snap elections, one in 66, one in second, one in 74. But then there's also this idea about a mandate for the party as a whole in terms of their sort of broader objectives. And Theresa May, and this Conservative manifesto is going to be very interesting for two reasons. One is that Theresa May, obviously, is not just looking to um, win over all opposition in the House of Commons and the House of Lords for her party's approach to how we how we get through Brexit, but she's also actually trying to bring together her party because there are different views within her own party about what that Brexit should look like. But also we've had, you know, ever since the Brexit vote, ever since Theresa May came into power, discussions about that Brexit, what it should look like. And Commons and the House of Lords again and again asking for more detail. So in a way, this is our first chance for her to actually put forward that detail, more so than than the, the sort of the, the white paper that never was. Um, but it's a manifesto. You're not really going to see the kind of detail. That there's still going to be huge questions that people ask about, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for, the, for devolution? What does this mean for Scotland? What does this mean for Northern Ireland? What does it mean for particular sectors? Um, Manifesto is never going to answer that. It's never going to be as long as a, a white paper or a detailed piece of legislation could be. So there'll still be big areas of contention, big areas of more specificity needed, whatever she puts out. But it will be for her, she'll be able to argue that she's got a personal mandate. Obviously, she was accused of being unelected, which wasn't constitutionally which true. true. Well, it wasn't constitutionally true. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, you know, she was elected to Parliament and, and that's the way our system works. But she didn't have that personal mandate. Again, Gordon Brown also, there were questions whether he should look for it in 2007. Having that one election behind you as a Prime Minister is still really important. The personal mandate is interesting. It's difficult to quantify because, like, I mean, and constitutionally, there isn't, doesn't really exist the personal mandate, right? But does seem intuitively true to me that once an electorate has voted for you, they feel just a bit more bonded to you than than before, and that your your margin for for error and for you know unpopularity is going to be a lot thinner and a lot lower than than uh, than if you don't have an election. And I think George Eaton of the of the New Statesman, of course, uh, made a really interesting point the other day, which was that actually the risky thing for Theresa May would have been to not have an election. And I think the the longer things went on and more that events, you know, rolled, roiled her government, the harder it would have been for her to assert her authority. I mean, I, I was involved in 2007 when Gordon didn't, the mm-hmm. election that never was, which was the turning point really in Labour's fortunes from 1997 to now, I think, um, almost overnight. Um, but I think one of the issues he grappled with then was this question of 
what, what was the national interest at stake that justified going to the country and saying, I know you don't want another election, but we're going to have to have one. And um, I don't think he could find one because I think he was torn between being a continuity with Blair candidate or yeah. prime minister and a break with Blair. And he could never quite work out the balance of those two things. But I was interested in Theresa May the other day when she when she came out and Downing Street can I, to declare the election. Can I interrupt election. that, Stuart? Were you at the time? Were you pro or anti? I was pro, was I was pro in election, but I was very outer orbit, so I wasn't really asked to my view as I right. remember. But um, yeah, that was my view at the time. But yeah. but I was struck when Theresa May came out in Downing Street the other day that she didn't say, um, "I want." I have my own. I have my own government now, and I want to have my own agenda for my own government, and that's mm. why I'm going to the country. She didn't seek a personal mandate. She made it about Brexit and the forces of obstruction in the House of Lords, the House of Commons, the courts, and everything else—a kind of mini Trump argument, almost asking the people for authority to beat the elite yeah. on behalf of the true cause of Brexit. But she didn't do the personal mandate thing. And that's an interesting. Way. I wonder why she didn't do that, and whether actually mandates come in different forms, not just through manifestos, but yeah. through the issue of the day. If you just say, this is the issue of the day, yeah. rather like Ted Heath did in in 74, when he said, this is about who governs, right? Yeah. Uh, and lost. <laughs> so he didn't anymore. Yeah. But, I, but it, it, were you struck by that when Theresa May came out, that she didn't make that argument? I was to some extent. I mean, there's two issues here. One is, it goes back to this point of what are we voting for? And ultimately, yes, it may, them, a manifesto may be part of it, but how many voters actually read them in any depth and how much they continue to refer back to them over the years, I don't know. It's more about, though, this party is then the one empowered to take through Brexit and their vision of Brexit. And there are other ways during the course of a parliament where voters can oppose, can whip up public opinion. We have, obviously, e-petitions e and all sorts of, you, you know, you can go to your MP, um, you can petition um, in all sorts of different ways. I guess she was looking for a personal mandate, but but wouldn't talk about that. But there's another issue here, which is that she's still going off the back of David Cameron's 2015 uh, manifesto. And we are already aware beyond Brexit that there are a number of key issues that the Conservatives now want to tackle, bring in things like grammar schools, um, plenty of other policy issues I think will be debated in this. At the moment, we're talking about this election campaign in terms of Brexit. Uh, in terms of the personality and the poll ratings for May versus Corbyn. But obviously there are a lot of other domestic issues that have been rising up the political agenda and some of those may turn out to be really key in terms of manifestos. Well, although she, it's, it's interesting and this made me think she didn't really talk about that in her speech, did she? I mean, she made it about, about Brexit. She didn't sort of repeat the the rhetoric that she she made on when she first ascended to, to 10 Downing Street about a different kind of country. Um, so, and you would have thought that, as you say, a key part of this will be enabling her government to be not just about Brexit. Um, but which, which she has problems with at the moment, right? As you say, grammar schools, national insurance rises. Yeah. Um, there's lots of departures from the manifesto, but every departure looks like it's in trouble because she doesn't have a majority that can support getting it through. So in a funny way, it's a Brexit election. But as you say, and I think maybe the real motivation is to give her a majority to do things other than Brexit, yeah. which at the moment she doesn't have. Yeah, I think it's that. It's to get her party behind her. So the process of developing the the manifesto, some kind of vision for Brexit. There'll probably be all sorts of ambiguities in there because she won't want to fight all those battles today or over the coming weeks. Um, but there'll also probably be key manifesto policies that were, are an obvious sort of 
sop to parts of her party to try and sort of make sure that they're getting things that they want and therefore line up behind her and in her overall vision for Brexit, which, you know, we'll still have to go through the process of and also isn't entirely up to us you know during all of this period what we haven't talked about is the effect it has on the brexit negotiations it slightly stifles whitehall's ability to be able to prepare for it because you know once we go into the campaign period they're reduced in terms of the amount of work that they can do um meanwhile obviously the the rest of the eu is continuing to prepare for those negotiations which won't really start until late June. And there's a lot that ministers could have been doing, travelling around, mm. building alliances, you know, being in their departments, looking through policies. So although we do have this, you know, this gap, this window that, that was, I agree with you, probably the only time in which you could call an early election before Brexit negotiations are, are done, um, there's still a lot that will be damaged in terms of the UK's preparation and, you know, it will come down to a negotiation in the end. So even May's vision for what Brexit should be like, you know, doesn't really matter unless she can actually fulfil it. Presumably one of the other invisible processes that happens in a campaign is the civil service have to prepare for implementing the manifestos of of the main parties. Yeah. So presumably somewhere in Whitehall at the moment a team is being assembled to... Yep, to they receive be... a copy of Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto when Absolutely. it lands and work out how to cost it and implement it and discuss with the shadow cabinet team. Yep. And it'll be interesting, actually, how much they, they do on that. Obviously, you know, they'll be looking at the polls and so forth, and they have limited time. Um, but they got, you know, they've had two shock elections results. Um, the last time around, 2015, we know they did a lot more preparation, not just for um, possible Labour government, but also all sorts of different variations. So they'll also be looking at the SNP. You know, could there be a progressive alliance? Could there be a shock result at this election, as we saw in 2010, and even, you know, against the polls in 2015? Yeah. Can I ask one last question about manifestos? I mean, at the risk of sounding a bit farageist about this. I mean, politicians break manifesto promises all the time i mean you know tony blair on student on, on student fees and theresa may on national insurance these things happen would the world really fall apart if manifestos didn't exist i mean i've been involved in labor manifesto processes where the idea has come up repeatedly of, of doing it in a different way david cameron of course tried the big society hologram on the side of battersea power station but everyone ends up going back to the same old manifesto effectively yeah. but why why do we do that why don't we just rip up the rule book and do it a different way would, it, would anything change constitutionally if we not did it constitutionally um they don't they're not contracts you know they don't really hold that kind of power in law or anything um but there's a strong british political tradition around them not elsewhere if you look at most of europe they don't have anything like the kind of level of of emphasis on a manifesto see we've seen with trump you know his manifesto in effect consisted of a series of tweets to which he's now doing a number of u-turns um so yeah you can argue that there's there's all sorts of reasons why they shouldn't follow that but it's about how much how much power it holds with the electorate how much backlash he gets how the opposition are then able to play against uh, manifesto promises. I mean, the the U-turn on on national insurance was a classic example, but that really came from within her own party about breaking a manifesto promise rather than from anyone else. Mm. So, so it's more about the politics of manifestos, how that plays to the country, how it's played in the media, how it plays in the party. It's not really any kind of binding guarantee of what policies would would or should be. Okay, thank you very much. That was really interesting. We're now going to go away and, and read manifestos very, very closely um, and then uh, and then ignore them. Um, Catherine Haddon, thank you so much. Thank really you. fascinating.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We like to end these shows with a rant or rave about something that either annoys us intensely, that's a rant, or we love intensely, and that's a rave. And Ian is going to rave about a podcast that he loves. Yeah, I, I have a rave about a podcast called Bombshell, which is um, it's associated with the War on the Rocks uh, website, um, which is a website about uh, it's an American website about national security policy. And Bombshell is a podcast uh, with an all female cast. Um, and uh, when they have special guests on, they're also female, so you also hear female voices discussing national security issues. So, number one, it's great to hear female voices on, on a field which is traditionally, uh, I think, kind of male-dominated. Number two is just absolutely fascinating. These people are such have such deep expertise in the field that on any issue and there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of national security going on at the moment whether it's Syria or North Korea and so on um defense policy they will elucidate and bring you insights and things that you, you, you suddenly realize how superficial most of the coverage you've been you've been reading is so it's in from that point of view it's also just incredibly charming um they they do they have this discussion over cocktails um and so there's always <laughs> some discussion of of you know how good the Aperol spritz is or their favorite bourbon uh, and so on um, and they're, they're just sort of very funny, but they're also deeply serious. They've all worked at the Department of Defense or, or, or the White House. They're, they're certain think tanks. Um, so they have been there, done that. They are watching what's going on in the Trump administration with a kind of shock and, you know, kind of awed gaze. And it's also an insight into uh, the sort of subculture of national security policy in in. in in Washington, and you get all sorts of really interesting insights. Is what what it's like, for instance. Uh, well, they had a great discussion of Jared Kushner's choice of uh, of clothing when he went to visit Iraq, um, and he was wearing a sort of backpack over his blazer and, and a white shirt. And whilst they were very funny about that, they were also they got them into a discussion of what you wear as a civilian on on one of these tours, um, and how sometimes it's really difficult to know what to wear and who you get advice from and. Uh, particularly as a woman, you know, uh, one of them said, actually, I like doing it because it, I don't have to make any choices for the whole week. I just have three T-shirts and one pair of car keys. And, and, and so I just like these kind of insights into to into this world. Um, and I also like it because I learn a lot about about what's going on. Just when you're speaking, Ian, it struck me that if if there was a British equivalent of people from the deep state, as the Americans like to call it, sipping cocktails, talking about these issues, I think it would be accused of metropolitan elitism pretty damn quick. But obviously in the US, yeah. it's a different culture and a different... Well, maybe. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of contempt towards Washington elites too, right? Um, and, but um, I would sort of challenge anyone to listen to this podcast and not be charmed and illuminated. Well, I should give it a spin, if you can give a podcast a spin. I guess I'm showing my age there. <laughs> this is Bombshell, a podcast from War on the Rocks. We're here to discuss military strategy, White House mayhem, and the best cocktails known to women. I'm Aaron Simpson. Uh, while we're on the subject of podcasts, I want to make a plug for two that I absolutely adore and everyone should should sample in the world of movies. 
Uh, one is called You Must Remember This, a podcast going now for a couple of years, run by Karina Longworth, who has an extraordinarily inviting way of presenting her shows, which essentially are 40-minute shows about the history, secret or forgotten histories of Hollywood. And she does it in a series. She did a fantastic series about the Manson murders. She's doing one at the moment called Dead Blondes. Definitely worth a listen. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. And the other is a a different format, uh, one by a guy called Adam Roach called The Secret History of Hollywood, which is the sort of progressive rock version of a movie podcast. He does... Anything progressive rock. Exactly. You're you're on it. The King Crimson of uh, movie podcasts. The moon hung low and limp in the August sky, kissing the tip of the frost-capped mountains on the horizon. He does a series which lasts for 20 or 25 hours on particular themes. He did a phenomenal one on Hitchcock. He's just finished one called Bullets and Blood about the history of Warner Brothers Studio, which I think lasts 20 hours. Don't be put off by the length. They are absolutely gripping. And he does it in a sort of semi-dramatized way, which which you, you cannot put down if you can not put down a podcast. I'm mixing my metaphors again. I have heard, and not just from you, that these are fantastic and they are definitely on my, so give on them my a, list. So give them a listen if you can. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon on The Deep Dive. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.